In this week's episode, I have an incredible gift for you all. I have had the pleasure of interviewing an exceptional human being by the name of Con, who is the founder of a Melbourne-based and Australian asylum seeker resource centre. Con is just an absolute inspiration. And in this episode, we talk about the power of hope or how community, love and compassion can change our world. You guys are going to love this one. Stay tuned. If you're trying to promote your brand, but stuck finding the right words, this is the podcast for you. Get your weekly inspiration on all things storytelling, creativity, branding, and so much more. I share inspiring stories, as well as tips and tricks on how to make your words work out in the world. And if you like free stuff, I've got you covered there too. Head to therightremark.com to steal my marketing secrets. You're listening to The Right Remark Podcast. Hello, beautiful human beings, and welcome to The Right Remark Podcast. We're up to episode 17 and today I tell you what, you guys are in for such a treat. I am sharing with you an interview today that I actually conducted last September in 2021. And at the time with somebody who I connected with over social media, the universe has a way of, I think, doing these things, this divine synchronicity. And we were talking, I was at the time very horrified about what was going on in Afghanistan. And some of you may recall America were pulling their troops out. There was local Afghanis trying to flee the country. And it was just horrendous scenes, scenes that I never thought certainly in my lifetime that I would ever, ever witness, albeit over the media. And Con was advocating for refugees through his social media platforms. And what resonated for me so much was at that time, we had a number of people were in lockdown in different cities in Australia, and he was calling out people's behavior for likening their plight of lockdown as similar to people that were fleeing Afghanistan, which is just completely wrong. And so I reached out to Con. I I, um, became very interested in his work and I'd heard of Asylum Seeker Resource Centre, but I I read his book, The Power of Hope. And and so when he agreed to come onto the podcast to have a chat with me, I just felt absolutely privileged because he is just such an incredible man and does such important work. So before I dive in to share that interview, I'll just give you a little bit of background in case you haven't heard of Con. So Con has an Order of Australia medal. He's the CEO and founder of the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre, which is the largest independent human rights organisation for refugees and people seeking asylum in Australia. The ASRC supports over 5,000 people seeking asylum each year. And they offer a whole range, more than 40 holistic programs that are really about protecting people who are seeking asylum from persecution and destitution and helping them to advance their own futures. Con has a very unique story of his own, and I won't give too much away, but he did grow up in a small country town in Victoria. And his personal experience growing up as a Greek boy with migrant parents 
has, I think, very much influenced and planted the seeds for his passion for human rights. And he's gone on from the ripe old age of 18, where he first started working with homeless men, right um, through to today with six university degrees under his belt. He is a lawyer, social worker, teacher, and he's now also a published author. He's been awarded a number of different awards and honours, including the Order of Australia Medal, a Churchill Fellowship, finalist of for Australian of the Year, as well as a Human Rights Medal and Citizen of the Year in his local communities. Just one of those people that really just is the, an example of what human beings can do when they follow their purpose and also just give themselves to and dedicate their, their life to helping others. So without further ado... Thank you so much, first of all, Con, for agreeing to join me on the Right Remark podcast this morning. My pleasure. Great to be here. Con, you have had such an exceptional story. You're, as I mentioned to you this morning, I've almost finished reading your book, The Power of Hope, and I would love to share with my listeners a little bit about your background, I suppose, and what it was like for you growing up as a migrant in Australia. Yeah, so my parents came here as migrants in the 60s, you know, leaving a life of poverty and hardship, hoping for a better life. My parents both had to leave school at very young ages. My father at the age of nine, my mum at the age of 12. You know, my dad dreamt of being a lawyer. My mum dreamt of being a math teacher. On my father's side, his parents were refugees themselves. And they they came to Melbourne and they met here kind of through a semi-arranged marriage fell in love and moved to a little country town in Victoria called Mount Beauty, which is a, a beautiful town. It's uh, near Mount is, Bogon, yeah. surrounded Gorgeous. by snow caps in winter. But the work they did there was far from beautiful. It was so harsh and brutal. They worked as tobacco farmers. And my mum and dad were always welcomed and treated really well in the town because they, you know, were hardworking and you know, earned the respect of the community through their, their hard work. But as a kid, it was incredibly difficult because – you're one of two Greek families in a town of 1,500 with you know, a few more Italian families, but you really stood out. And my memory is very much one of, you know, experiencing racism growing up, being told you know, to go back to where you came from, not being, you know, not feeling welcome and knowing what it was like to to not belong, to, you know, in a classroom of Smiths and Jones to be the carapani yotivis meant you stood out. And so at a young age, you learn what it's like to be an outlier and what does it feel like to not belong, to be seen as somehow less than or a deficient in some way just because of your cultural background and your surname. And that was a really tough lesson as a kid, but a very important lesson that I carried through to my adulthood. Well, it seemed to like it certainly, as you mentioned as well, you know, you were born in Australia, your parents were Greek. It's like you're almost in between these two worlds, that feeling of loneliness. But it became quite a pivotal moment for you, some of those childhood experiences, because you ended up founding the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre. Yeah. I mean, we moved from the country when I'm 12. We moved to Thornbury in Melbourne. I go to a Thornbury High School, which at the time was quite a rough public school. The racism stops, but the bullying begins. You just get bullied and you know, through most of high school and you develop a really strong sense of resilience and a sense of empathy for others that don't belong and don't fit in. And by the time I got to 18, I kind of took all that, all that adversity I'd been through and tried to do something positive with it, you know, make medicine out of that poison and try to find something good to do with it. Because at 18, 
those that childhood it kind of really knocked me about it you know eviscerated any sense of self-worth and self-esteem I didn't really have a strong sense of who I was as in something as in I didn't feel worthwhile or feel like I made sense or belonged and I kind of went out searching for somewhere that I made sense and I started volunteering at 18 and from 18 to 28 I volunteered in dozens of charities and then founded the ASSC at 28 and that was again another pivotal you know change point in my life as well. I'd love you to share the story of how the ASRC was founded. Yeah, a lot of it was just seizing a moment and an opportunity. I had my background is a social worker, lawyer, and teacher. And one of my backgrounds is as a trauma counselor. And I had met a person seeking asylum who needed counseling at the request of our Red Cross nun, the beautiful sister Bernadette, who had asked me if I'd see this young man. So I'm counseling this young man from Turkey. And he's my age, and but in his country, similar background. He was a professional. He'd like to go to democracy protests and stand up for human rights. Very relatable. The difference was, while I was able to do that peacefully here, in his country, he'd been arrested and tortured for that. And that really opened up my eyes to the plight of people seeking asylum in Australia, that people were often left in limbo without a safety net, often without health care, the right to work, and with all this trauma and all this waiting about whether they'd be allowed to stay and be safe. And I'd been teaching at the time at a, at a local TAFE, and my students needed to do a, a class project. That was a day a week for eight weeks. They No one would take them on for such a short a placement. And they came back to me and said, anyway, we could do something with you. And I said, look, I've been working with people sick in asylum, and I know people are going hungry in Melbourne. What do you think about starting up a little food bank, our own charity, to help people sick in asylum? And that's how it began, in the space of eight weeks in of classes with a few hundred dollars, the lovely Google, my friend Pablo, who gave me this little 20-square-meter shop fronting Footscray, rent-free. We were able to found the ASSC and it opened its doors on the 8th of June, 2001, with furniture from my mom's, money out of my back pocket, and the kindness of my friend Pablo. And we began. And, and that's how it started. And then a couple of months later, Tampa happened, then 9-11 happened. And what went from being a charity where there was very little awareness of the issue, very few people coming in to volunteer or donate, and suddenly, just a couple of months later, it just all exploded. Mm, yeah, I, I just can't believe that as well. Like, it, And you, your friend Pablo, correct me if I'm wrong, he had the grocery store next door, is that right? Yeah, so Pablo had founded Grasslands Grocery and Information Cafe. It was such a beautiful idea, way beyond its time in the late 90s, which was the idea of a non-for-profit social enterprise that would take its proceeds and donate them to help other organisations get off the ground. Wow. And we were the first one that he had helped. And, I, you know, it doesn't start without his kindness and generosity. And he provided fresh food and veggies for the first six months because we really were running on on nothing, just people dropping a box of veggies or coming in with $50 or $100. But after Tampa happened, where the Australian government refused to allow 434 mainly Afghan refugees who were stranded at sea and rescued by a Norwegian shipping boat called the Tampa, that changed everything because suddenly the public became so aware of what was happening to people seeking mm. asylum in this country. And suddenly we had a stream of people knocking on our doors wanting to donate food or give a little bit of money or volunteer because people felt such a sense of shame and rage that Australia was doing this to refugees. A country founded on multiculturalism, founded as a melting pot, and then yet still these things happen. Well, I think we, we are where we are when we you know, we are a country which has the oldest living culture on earth, 60,000 years old, and yet we have yet to have any real truth and reconciliation with First Nations people. And so I think in the absence 
of coming to grips with the fact this country was built on genocide and dispossession. So if we're not willing to have an honest conversation and heal from that together, then is it any surprise that we grapple so poorly with the idea of multiculturalism? I mean, it was once something that we celebrated, but over the last couple of decades, it's been dismantled. There is no such thing as a department of multiculturalism anymore. You know, we've gone from this being people seeking asylum and a humanitarian issue to a border protection issue, to a national Mm. security issue, to stop the boats, to on-water operational matters. Built on fear and terror. So we've gone and taken what has been a humanitarian crisis and we've weaponized it. And you can even see now with with a crisis happening in Afghanistan, the reluctance of the government to do anything but the bare minimum. It's offered zero extra humanitarian places, not a single extra place. It won't even allow the you know, under 5,000 Afghans here that have been accepted as refugees the right to permanent protection so they can be reunited with their families. And we have gone and poisoned the compassion, heart and imagination of this nation by convincing people that refugees, the heroes of the story, that people actually fleeing terror are going to be its proponents and that we need to be cruel to save people. And yet the great irony is, in fact, we're punishing the refugees that make it here for not drowning at sea, for still being alive, because... If we cared so much about them not dying at sea, we would treat those who survived with dignity and compassion. We wouldn't be locking people up still eight years later, you know. Well, and the courage that they deserve and the incredible journey that they've risking their life, their children's life, their, you know, their desperation. I'd love to just come back to you. I want to talk a little bit more about Afghanistan, but first of all, I'd love to just chat a little bit more about your history. In your book, The Power of Hope, you say that you open your charity and it was, I can't recall if it was before or shortly around the same time that you'd lost every job that you'd gone for. Oh, yeah. And and I'd love to know, you know, in more recent times, obviously sometimes I personally believe the universe kind of guides us whether we like it or not. You know, we all, mm. all brought here into this world for a certain purpose. Mm. And clearly what happened with you, that that did then trigger the birth of ASRC. But can you tell me about in more recent times another pivotal moment in your life? Yeah, look, I mean, there's been, if I think over the last 20 years around this work, there have been so many pivotal moments. There's been moments like paying the people smuggling, getting smuggling to Manus Island at the height of the humanitarian crisis there and coming face-to-face with what we were doing to refugees in offshore detention centres. There was, you know, uh, or remember the the case of a little girl that I assisted and legal represented who had tried to take her life in detention and been all of the age of 10. I mean, there there are thousands of these stories. I mean, there are thousands of these dark stories. There's also beautiful stories. I I might share a story that's actually one that, that actually captures the light and joy of this work because it's easy to talk about the horrors of what this government does, but but not about the joy that comes from living a purposeful life and making choices around the person you are and the life you live. So a couple of years ago, I was at La Trobe University. They had been giving me an honorary doctorate of laws. And I took my mum because, you know, my mum's so immensely proud of me. And I want to share those moments with her because she never even got to go to high school, little I go to university. And you've collected and, a few degrees, I believe, Con. Yeah, yeah, I've got six of them. <laughs> and, uh, but, but again, because my family never got to go to university, you know, they, they dreamt of having the life I got to have. So I think migrant kids always feel a, a real sense of responsibility to make sure that sacrifice counts for something, that you have to squander it. And there I am after receiving this doctorate, and I'm, and I'm saying this young woman comes up, she's all dressed in a graduation gear, and she's like, oh, can I, can I meet your mom? I want to hug your mom. I'm like, of course you can. So she 
goes up to her mom, she hugs her mom, kisses my mom, and then explains how when she was a little girl, her and her sister with her parents came to the Islamica Resource Center for help to seek asylum and how we had helped them do so wow. and helped them be able to get asylum here. And then today she was graduating. She was the first to graduate from her family. She was graduating from her first degree. And there she was with her sister and her parents. It's those sort of beautiful moments. It's those beautiful moments when you see people that, you know, one of the things is people that we work with, they're not refugees. They're not asylum seekers. That's a label. Like it's a moment in time. And what I mean by that is there's a real danger that people are defined by the worst in their life. That is the moments of the greatest darkness and suffering and oppression. When in reality, People experience this awful persecution, but then they're this complete person that has the same aspirations, love their family just as much, dream just as much about contributing and participating and belonging. And the greatest joy is when you meet people that once came to you in their darkest hours and they're thriving as entrepreneurs, they're thriving working at universities, they're running their own small businesses, they're doing their own startups, they're out there as you know future political leaders. That's the joys around when you give refugees protection, sanctuary, and the opportunity, you've got such resilient, resourceful people, and they will thrive. And so the most pivotal moments are always going back to that, about going back to hope. You know, the pivotal moments in my own life are always about, you know, I suppose have been all the darkest moments have driven me, you know, losing my father at 27, my experiences as a child, all my experiences of losing every job I'd had before I started the ACC. <laughs> but even those, but even those ones are important lessons because each of those were about not losing your integrity. And every place that sacked me subsequently went on to give me their most prestigious awards. I saw later. that. Yeah. You talk and, and about so, that in your book. It's incredible. So, but 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 the lesson within that that I often share with young people is don't be afraid to draw a line in the sand about your values and about your own principles and integrities. You can always get another job, but you've only got one set of principles and you've only got your integrity mm. and you need to be able to sleep at night. And so I always just encourage people, don't be afraid of losing a job. Just don't lose yourself. You'll always find something better. And that's that's the thing I've always found as well is that 20 years later, the reason we have the support we do and we're able to do the work we do is because we always lead with our values. And that's the one thing that navigates us through these, these moments of great complexity and adversity. Mm. Your book is subtitled How Community, Love and Compassion Can Change Our World. Mm. Quite a powerful statement. What does that position mean to you right now in the face of what's happening in the world? Because, you know, Mm. I know there is a a number of us that are just grappling with this pandemic, grappling with the situation that we find ourselves in with the uncertainty with what's happening in Afghanistan, you know, all these just horrors going on. Yeah. Look, I think I think the thing that really stands out for us is, and what, what that means for me is, so COVID has kind of brought home very much a little bit, just a little bit of the refugee story that I've faced into for the last 20 years, which is what is it like to have your life in limbo, to be on hold, to be mm. separated from the loved ones, to fear for your own safety and well-being, to not be able to freely move. That's like every day for the refugees we work with, where there's no exit strategy for them. And I think what what I try to talk about in terms of what I mean by that is going, in those darkest times, the one thing that lifts us out of it is about appealing to the best in ourselves and the best in others. And at a time where people are are feeling more than ever, because I, like everyone else, is struggling with lockdowns, my mental health has been knocked about. I'm struggling to cope just like anyone else. I'm not superhuman. No. But what I also do is return back to going, 
Where's the hope in that darkness? And where's the possibility? And what I believe is that as a community, there is more good than there is bad. And that if we catalyze the best of us and remain optimistic, compassionate, and empathetic, and think not just about ourselves, that we can actually make things better. And that we are at our best when we live authentic lives, when we live lives with purpose and passion, and when people realize they can be part of making things better instead of being stuck inheriting that with all the misery around. Because you couldn't blame people for looking at our political leaders, especially our prime minister, and not feeling a deep sense of cynicism and disengagement. But we can't afford to be apathetic. We can't afford to be indifferent. You know, our voices are really powerful and matter. And I always say to people, no matter how helpless you might feel in any one moment, you actually have the power to do good just by caring, just by donating your time or energy or whatever you can, just by participating and advocating for whatever issue you care about. But the key thing is be present in life and give what you can. Look after yourself during you know, this tough time with lockdowns. But at the same time, it's not just the body being sedentary, it's the heart and spirit being sedentary. Like if we're not moving those things forward in ways that create optimism and possibility, then there's an atrophy that grips us, that that diminishes and shrinks us. And we don't want to be those sort of people because we're at our best when we are loved and feel loved. We're at our best when we love and are vulnerable. We're at our best when we live lives that give us a meaning and purpose. And we're at our best when we feel like we're making a difference. And and I just keep encouraging people to connect to community and to be part of a community, to know there's a place for them in places like ACC and many other places to go and make a difference. But that's that's what reinvigorates us and regenerates us. It's too easy just to be cynical and angry. Like eventually it just exhausts you, doesn't it? And what Absolutely. happens is people just numb to it because it's like the world is, I look around and I look at all the suffering in Afghanistan, I look at the pandemic, I look at what's happening with climate change, I look at what's happening deaths in custody, I look at violence against women, I look at all these things and I'm like, it's all too much. And it's like saying to people, take a deep breath. No one's going to be able to solve it all or tackle it all, but find a little patch where you can be part of making it better and breathe and get involved. And that's a that's an important thing is to know we, we don't have to be defeated by all of this stuff. No, and I think also like something that has gotten me through over the last 18 months or so is it feels like we're bringing into sharp focus a reminder of something that we've potentially a human experience have always known that we are all connected, mm. whether mm. we have these government structures and all these aspects that are constructs, I suppose, social constructs that exist. We are absolutely a global community. And this pandemic is reminding us of that, I yeah. think, as well, you know, that we can't ignore the fact that we're all connected. We can't ignore the fact that climate change, all of these things, all of these things that we're facing into can only be solved by working together instead exactly. of working in isolation. Exactly. Con, when you started your charity, you were determined to never accept government funding. Can I mm. ask, does this still hold true today for your charity? Yeah, we, we don't take federal government funding as a charity and we keep our independence. And the, and the reason is, if right now, the, the Morrison government's actually got trying to actually bring in legislation that would allow charities to lose their charitable status by engaging in peaceful civil disobedience. Because what the government wants right now is to silence our charities. There's a whole campaign called wow. Hands Off Our Charities. But we're part of like 100-plus charities working together on this issue. The biggest charities in the country all together on this going, hold on, why would you want to silence us? And one of the reasons we don't take federal government funding is because you know the minute you do, you can't bite the hand that feeds you. And what I learned as a volunteer in my 20s was there were lots of wonderful charities doing really important work at the coalface 
But the problem was you're often putting a Band-Aid on a gaping wound. And what you realise is these, these issues, you're, you're, these evils you're, you're facing into, hunger, homelessness, violence in the home, these aren't just the failures of individuals. These are the byproduct and symptoms of systemic inequality and systems that are broken. And you need to be able to call those out. And so we, we remain independent in that way in not taking federal government funding. Mm. And, you know, I guess at the moment in particular, there's, it's like the, the Tampa crisis all over again in a completely mm. different manner. The Guardian reported over the weekend that there are many Afghans living in Australia that are awaiting asylum without a yeah. visa who may now be returned in spite of the fact that, you know, there was supposed to be amnesty provided. Is this true? What are your thoughts on that? So at the moment, there are 4,427 Afghans who have been accepted as refugees either by the Morrison, Turnbull or Abbott government. So this is actually by the Liberal government itself. Mm. Those people are on three or five-year temporary visas that basically roll on forever at the moment, which is just horrifying, where they're being told for the moment, we're not going to send you back. But when those visas expire, there is nothing stopping the government from saying, I'm not granting you another three or five-year refugee visa and I am sending you back. Most critically, in the absence of a permanent visa, these are people here nine years that got no family reunion. There's another 898 that are on bridging visas that are seeking asylum or have been refused asylum. There were people being refused asylum while the Taliban was starting to take over Afghanistan, being told it was still safe to go back. And there's been another 50 in detention centres. It's just extraordinary. In what universe could you ever send back these people? So it remains very much live because all the government has done is say, we won't for now. And what the Afghan-Australian community is demanding, it's got six key demands, and two of them are grant permanent protection to those already found to be refugees, as they would have if they were in the United States, Canada, the UK. They'd be permanent. They wouldn't be temporary. And secondly, give amnesty and sanctuary to the rest of them, that are the Afghan nationals that are here on temporary visas. Altogether, you're talking just over 5,000 people. Nothing, absolutely nothing. nothing. And absolutely also nothing. in spite, you know, with what's happening in terms of getting people out as well, it's just horrendous. It's honestly oh. blows my mind. But as an ex-journalist myself, what I struggle with is you cannot find this information. If you're the average person in Australia, the punter that reads the news, you have no idea about any of these things because the media is so completely oh. led by the government. It's impossible to actually get this information. It's a real issue. It's, I mean, we have such a monopolization. You've got wonderful outlets like you know, the Guardian, the Saturday Paper, SBS, the ABC, who will report this. But people predominantly get their news from mainstream news, which doesn't have this analysis or critique and is often led by the you know, interests of, of Rupert Murdoch. And people often go onto social media. Um, and that's so what we try to do as an organization is have a presence across all those platforms to try to counter a lot of that misinformation that demonization of refugees or just the sheer lack of reporting altogether. But it's difficult because you're up against a behemoth of a, of a media company in, in the Murdoch empire and, and you're there trying to counter all of that. So it's a real challenge. The average mm. person has no idea what's going on. If they did, I honestly think most Australians would be, would be horrified. Absolutely. I would agree with that. And I think that comes back to why your point earlier is so poignant around just avoiding that apathy and people getting informed and taking the time, even though it is challenging to face into some of what's happening in the world, get educated, understand what they can do to help. I want to go back to, because one of the things that I'm personally very, 
very passionate about and care quite deeply about due to my own experiences is homelessness. Mm. And 11 years ago, my husband and I, when living in Melbourne, we found ourselves home or effectively homeless overnight due to a horrific house fire. And yet Mm. because of our privilege, our Mm. family, our community, we were lifted up and we came out of what was a pretty Mm. horrendous situation. But homelessness is something that I've always been quite horrified by in Australia, in a Western country Mm. like ours and the lack of support around homelessness. And one of the things that I was really quite surprised by and wanted to ask you about in your book was around way back when you were offering fortnightly free massages at Mm. Ozenham House, I think it was, in North Melbourne. Tell me about that. What made you want to do that? What did it teach you? Yeah, Yeah. well, I became a qualified massage therapist personally for myself as part of my own journey of, you know, of looking after myself and healing. But the other part was really I wanted to offer free massages to people that were homeless. And why I wanted to do that was because I knew that life on the streets were just horrific and so unsafe for people. And so there I was every fortnight going into Ozenham House, setting up the massage table and massaging these men who had just come out of prison, had been sleeping rough on the street, had often been assaulted, beaten, raped, all sorts of horrific things. And and when I was massaging the men, how many of them were just so grateful to experience touch that was not abusive? And for most of them, they would say, this is the first time someone's touched me in years where it hasn't been them physically hurting me. And mm. there's something really powerful about being touched because being touched is about being loved and about being seen and about being seen as a human being, not as something that's undesirable. Like you look at the stereotypes around homelessness and yet when you're working, when I was working with this man, it's like they all once had a family. They often were married. They had kids. And it could take everything from the loss of a job to becoming mentally unwell. There are things that a lot of people are just a paycheck away or a mental health crisis or a health crisis away from losing everything. And in fact, the fastest growing population of homeless people in Australia is actually women over 55, which which people wouldn't even be aware of. And what is really interesting is when we see people as homeless, we have a stereotype of the person in your local shopping centre where your heart breaks when you see them on the streets begging. But they are not representative of the reality of the breadth of people from young people to elderly people that are homeless in this country because we don't have enough social housing. Because we have so many barriers to stable housing. If you're a woman fleeing violence in this country, the difficulty of getting a safe bed tonight is, or if you're a person experiencing a mental health crisis, the difficulty of actually getting an emergency mental health bed tonight is so difficult. And so often people end up on the streets. And often, and what people don't know is how many, how much of our population is in prison because they've got no stable self accommodation. So they hold on what's called remand because they've got nowhere safe to for that person to go to. Yeah. And that's a common thread for, for people as well. So we've got a massive social housing crisis and also the fact that we don't have a, an income safety net that takes people out of poverty as well beyond all the other complexities. So it's an area I'm very passionate about. And, and again, those simple things, I've volunteered for many homeless charities as an outreach worker in soup kitchens, as a massage therapist. And the key thing I found was here are people that could easily be me or you and just life circumstances have taken down this path but, and people think they're so far removed from their realities. You know, you look right now at how many of us could find ourselves there very quickly and very easily overnight. And my worry is, do we remember the human beings with families that deserve our empathy and compassion? Or do we just look at them as, as a problem and as a burden and blame them for where they are? 
Absolutely. I've, I remember a few years ago I was consulting to Ambulance Victoria and one of the most common call-outs they would have would be a concerned citizen, I'm doing the bunny ears because for those of you who are listening can't see me, but and it was simply to wake that person, that the paramedics would arrive to wake that person up because they have to check for a sign of life. But what was wrong with the concerned civilian couldn't just go over and say, hey, mate, are you okay? Yeah. Yeah. Are you okay? I just want to check in. Are you okay? Yeah. And that would mean so much to that individual. Yeah, yeah. it's a, it's a real issue. Um, that thing is really powerful. Just going up to someone gently and going, "Hey, just checking you're okay." Yeah. That's what I do. And yeah. then a person, people are always appreciative. Just checking. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. In your book, you mentioned between 2013 and 2017, more refugees died on Manus and Nauru. Than mm. there were than there were people safely settled in Australia. What's the yeah. situation like today for this? Because this is something that, you know, obviously, we don't get a lot of information in the mainstream media. Yeah. People have to seek out. I mean, this is yeah. really a core of some of the work that you do. Where we are now at the moment is we've got about a hundred people that were brought here for medical evacuation from Papua New Guinea Nauru that remain detained after eight years. About a bit over half have been released that were brought here, but for no feasible reason half remain and their fears and anxieties are further heightened by the fact there was a Melbourne immigration guard who tested positive for COVID just this last couple of days uh, and for 18 months we've been calling for the release of people from detention because it's not safe. There's another roughly about 230 to 240 people in Papua New Guinea and Nauru that we're still holding there and just for some context we're spending and this is the exact number four million dollars per person to keep those people there per year. It just now, defies um, logic. And Australian yeah. taxpayer dollars to for well, what purpose? Well, last year we cut 20,000 refugee and humanitarian places over four years to cover the cost of locking people up for one year offshore. In fact, the cost of one year offshore is $100 million more to lock up 230 people than it was to safely resettle 20,000 people in four years. Now, outside of that, then you've, you've still got um, hundreds more just in limbo in the community, from the families that came during kids off Nauru to people that have now been released to the community. And they're just waiting. They're all refugees. They're just waiting for some sort of safe resettle in limbo. So that just continues. And, and again, the Australian government refuses to take up New Zealand's offer, but also the Australian government tomorrow could just – you've got to understand that it's not that they can't do this. Like they could tomorrow grant these people permanent protection and nothing would change. No one's been able to make it by sea to Australia for nine years because we illegally turn people back at sea um, instead of offering people safe settlement and passage and take more people. So this this is just political and this is just about when they get to the next election, they might need to play the race card and if they do, they need a live population they can point to to go, look, only we will do this. Look at what we have done. How we've so kept people, Australia safe. Yeah. And so <laughs> they, they, they leave these people locked up and offshore so they can point to these as artefacts of their cruelty, but in a way that speaks to their base that goes, good, we'll vote for you because you're willing to do this. I think that that appetite for that cruelty is tapering and is gradually getting less and less. I don't think the majority of Australians see the logic or behind that. And in fact, the majority of Australians, including Liberal Party voters, want people that are found to be refugees not left offshore forever. They want to resettle. They the majority of voters want the Bilawella family to be able to stay. The majority yes. of Australians think we should help people from Afghanistan. Like most people want to do the, the right thing. 
But our, polit- our, our government kind of unfortunately appeals to the worst in people and appeals to a base that actually, you know, supports this sort of um, cruel hardline approach. It feels like a very fear base. It's trying to create a quite a fear based culture rather than. Oh, very much so. Yeah. Very much so. Very much so. So, Con, the crisis in Afghanistan is very front of mind at the moment. It is topical for people. What can people do to help? Yeah. So, at the moment, there's been some handful of critical things we've been asking people. There are six key demands of the Afghan Australian community. Very simply, they are 20,000 extra humanitarian places for those most at risk from the Taliban. Permanent protection for those found to be refugees already. Sanctuary and amnesty for those Afghan nationals that are in the country right now. Getting the interpreters and guides that help our troops out. Resettling safely refugees from Afghanistan that have been sitting for almost a decade in Indonesia that uh, have been accepted as refugees. And prioritising family reunion. In fact, we currently have a policy that deprioritises family reunion from Afghanistan. And the key actions are calling the Prime Minister's office with those demands. And all this information is on the ASSC website, calling a local member of parliament, asking them to act on these things. And the big ones are those 20,000 places, that permanent protection and that family reunion. So calling a PM's office, signing the petition for action for Afghanistan and calling a local member. And all three of those actions you can find on the ASSC's website. That's fantastic. Con, you're an exceptional human being and you should feel so proud of the work you do. It's honestly, I'm so glad I connected with you via social media and just your story's blown me away. Your book is incredible. I'll make sure for those that are listening today that I drop those links for there. Finally, Con, how can people find you and how can they support the work more broadly of the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre? There'll be another volunteer recruitment coming up in the next month and people could come and volunteer. They're the best ways. Volunteer, donate, or donate food, you know, donate your goodwill are great ways. You can find me on every social media platform as <laughs> there is, and you can find the ACC pretty much in every platform as well. Look, Con, thank you so much for your time. It's been such a pleasure to chat with you today. Is there anything else you wanted to add? I'm just encouraging people just to care, just to, to lead with love, lead with compassion, Find an issue that you're passionate about and, and get involved. Just start. And, and you might think during lockdown is the hardest time if you're in, in, in the city at the moment uh, or regional rural area that is in lockdown. I can't encourage you enough. Now's the time to take a little bit of that fatigue and that part of you that's really struggling and go, I, I need to regenerate myself and nurture it with something good and go find something that feeds that. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Con. That's Thank you. Fantastic. What a incredible man. If you've enjoyed today's episode, I would so love if you could please take a minute to rate, review and share this podcast via the Apple Podcast app. And I hope that you enjoyed today's conversation as much as I enjoyed chatting with Con. We'll drop the links into the show notes on my website for this episode so that if you feel called to, can support the incredible work that Con and his team are doing at the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre. Okay, guys, that's all from me for this week. I hope you have a beautiful day. We got the right, so we put the hammer right now. Why be like us?